Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. High intensity. That's your stuff, though. Dude, that's awesome. Thanks for doing that. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, no problem. I, I wish I got, it's high intensity health for you guys who are looking. This is Mike's, uh, Mike's uh, I guess, your trade name or something like that. It's name your podcast, name your show, name what you do, I guess, something like that. Yeah, man, it looks amazing. So do you have a green screen and then in the background you can overlay images and stuff? Like yeah, that? yeah. That's what I yeah. do. I've done that for the last, I don't know what it's been, about 30 guests or so since I figured out how to do a green screen. It, it kind of gets me a little pixelated looking and some people think it's distracting, but I don't really care. I'll do it anyway. But uh. I like it. No, it's cool. I, I've seen you do that with other articles and stuff like that on your like one-off YouTube videos. And I wasn't sure how you're doing it because it looks yeah. really good. Yeah. This, you know, it was kind of funny. I bought this house. We bought this house from this couple and they had a giant like roll away mirror for their little exercises, that old couple. And I was like, I don't need a damn roll away mirror. So I just threw a piece of green cloth over it and made it into a, made it into a makeshift green screen. I can roll back and forth. So that's so yeah, cool. So you, you, there's a little app. I think I, I think I got a lap called green screen or something like that. You just, you know, cut and paste, you know, photos into there and, you know, blah, blah, blah type of stuff. And so, man, that's what we've been doing. So, Hey Mike, are you up? Are you still, you're up in, uh, up in, uh, you're somewhere in, I can't remember you're in Pacific Northwest. Kirkland. Somewhere is it Seattle? Where are we at? It, in the Seattle area, yeah. So that low carb Seattle conference that you spoke at, um, yeah, so that yeah. was in Bellevue. So we're in Kirkland, just due north. If anyone shopped at uh, Costco and bought yeah. Kirkland signature stuff, that's where the name comes from. So yeah, my um, my uh, my girlfriend works f- with Costco. She's one of the people that she sells a lot of stuff to Costco, and so she's always up there and nice. up there in uh, Issaquah, uh, hanging out doing doing stuff. And so we get up there. She gets there quite a bit and I get there once in a while, but cool. Mike, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I told you this story. I've got a good friend. Um, his name is Jake Oldham. He's an orthopedic surgeon I used to work with. We were stationed together at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, funny enough, the name is very similar back in New Mexico and yeah. just a great, great guy. I mean, he's one of the, you know, of, of, of people I know in the world, he's, he's one of the really solid, really solid dudes, but he, he was, he was listening to your podcast for a long time and you know he and then he called me because you had mentioned my name and i hadn't talked to jake in about 10 years and he goes yeah. hey man i heard your name on some dude's cut podcast and he was telling me about you and i said and so it turns out that i commute from uh southern california to new mexico quite a bit so i'm back and forth on i-40 a lot of times i'd stay out in kingman arizona just because like a nice stopping point if i was driving particularly if i had my kids with me because they, they don't like driving 12 hours and uh so he lives in Kingman, and he says, hey, man, anytime you come through, to stay at my, my house. So that's what I've been doing. So last time I was there, they gave me a bunch of, bunch of eggs they cook, their, their chickens made. So, so anyway, thank you for that, Mike. You, you, cool. you reunited me with one of my buddies. That's so, awesome. Hey, Mike, tell, yeah, tell <laughs> no, us a little I, bit about your background for people that may not might be familiar with your store, and then we can get into just start chatting about stuff. Let's do it. Yeah. I think, you know, w- w- when I referenced your name, that was with John Lemonsky, a, a mutual friend of, of both of ours. And so we were just talking about like customizing carnivore for different people, you know, based upon your activity level and things like that. So I, it was all in good light, Sean. So don't worry about that. 
Yeah. So my background, you know, every time I get asked this question, I like to position it a little bit differently. I think a lot of people, um, you know, if you're in the health space and, and you have a, a reasonably sized platform, like we have 200,000 some odd people on YouTube and stuff like that, people think like, oh, you, you know, you're just born into this picture perfect of health. But I've had a lot of failures over the years. Um, you know, an older sibling introduced me to drugs and alcohol when I was nine years old. So basically, you know, I'm so interested in the ketogenic diet because my brain was at a really, my brain and body, um, you know, feels weird to even talk about it. We're, we're really dysfunctional, right? For, for like between ages of nine and 15, I don't remember anything I learned in school. Uh, I was basically, got, I got arrested twice before the age of 15. And so I, I'm like I'm constantly catching up, making up for lost time in my adolescence. And so that's why I'm so interested in health now is after I got arrested when I was 15, uh, my, my dad was like, you got to make a decision, man. Like your life is going down the tubes. And so I started lifting weights, started eating clean, uh, reading fitness books and magazines. Uh, my stepmother introduced me to, to a chiropractor who got me squatting and deadlifting and pressing and doing all the compound lifts. And then my brain started working again. I could communicate. I was so shy, like talking to girls and things back then was really, you know, I was really shy. And, and so it changed my life. And I was like, wow, this is so powerful. And ever since then, you know, it's been my mission to help other people uncover just the power that our own body can, you know, when we change our mindset, number one, and we believe in ourselves and we change exercise. And I really believe there's a lot of like, like benefits that can, can come from strength and conditioning and so forth. So that's why it's like been a foundation of my life ever since. Uh, and clean nutrition, it just totally sharpens the mind, sharpens the body. And so that's kind of how I started. And then I was a sales rep. You know, I went and then eventually, you know, went to college, got a, a bachelor's degree. And I did the pre-med route, took the MCAT, realized that maybe that wasn't the best decision for me. I uh, got a master's degree in nutrition and then became a sales rep back in 2006. And so I was working with a lot of healthcare practitioners. And I was so surprised that, you know, a lot of MDs that I knew that were friends, they didn't know the research. And I thought, that's crazy because they're so busy charting, dealing with Medicare reimbursements, you know, the whole thing, Dr. Baker. So and I was like, you know what, I, I think I can create a platform to not only because I was a, I was a sales rep. For, so for selfish reasons, I was like, well, I can interview these doctors that are selling the supplements that I was selling, build them their platform. So that would help me, but it also help them. So that's how this whole podcast thing started back in, in 2014. But I started doing these interviews. Uh, basically, there were webinars back in 2012. And so we, we had a lot of great people on there. David Perlmutter, uh, David Hasse, you know, a lot of just integrative functional medicine doctors. So that's kind of the long and short of it. But but I want everyone to realize that I've made a million and one mistakes. You know, I, I came to this through my own failures, my own insecurities, like, you know, because I think people look at physically active folks like ourselves and think, man, you've probably always been this way. Health comes easy for you. You're not overweight. You're not this and that. But you know, all of us have our own struggles and, and uh, lifestyle changes can really uh, help us overcome and, and correct our biology. And I'm living proof of that through diet and exercise. So that's good. I mean, that's a great story. And I, and I would, you know, certainly, uh, you know, talking as, as someone who spent many years uh, in, in the healthcare system, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is, you know, even if physicians want to do the right thing, a lot of times they just don't have the, have the time to do it because the system is kind of designed for you to kind of just crank patients in and out. And, and, you know, you've got the, the, uh, the billing and the coding and the documentation and, you know, you've got the, you know, the pressure to, to see more and more patients because there's so many more sick people. And, and because the reimbursement situation has changed where you have to, you almost have to practice high volume medicine in the sort of the standard model, the standard insurance employed model. And so it's, it's, it really, it, it really short changes 
patients, but also physicians, because I think a lot of physicians, they, they, you know, they see a higher burnout, a lot of dis- dissatisfaction, even though, I mean, it's, it's for many people, it's a very well-paying job and there are certainly perks to it. But I mean, at the same time, you know, why you go into medicine and, and what you end up doing sometimes aren't exactly the same thing. And so I do see that uh, there's a huge market for uh, people doing what you're doing and, and kind of, you know, kind of what I've evolved into doing is just, Let's try and really focus on getting people healthy and, and absolutely lifestyle, uh, not only just for health. I mean, just, you know, if we're talking about absence of disease, um, but it is so much more powerful than that. As you know, I mean, just every aspect of your life changes, like you said, from your confidence level, from your, you know, your ability just to achieve things makes a huge difference. So let me, let's talk about some of those mistakes because I, you know, I've made them too. I tell people the only thing I know for sure is I'm wrong about something. I mean, that's something I can guarantee. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I'm willing to just sort of see what happens as time goes. And uh, so let's talk about some mistakes that, um, you know, you've kind of discovered over the years. What, what have you found doesn't work for you personally or maybe doesn't work um, for, for many people? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think, God, I mean, there's so many mistakes. And, and there's, you know, a book out there, I mean, business books talk about those who make the most mistakes win. And so I think, you know, um, one of the things I like to encourage people to do is just try something, try something out. What, try weightlifting, try running, try eating carnivore, try keto, whatever it is, like try to do. So- I think a lot of people think that they, they need to have some sort of recipe or some double blind randomized placebo controlled trial in order to like do something different. And so one of the mistakes that, that I think a lot of people make is just being too rigid. And so I, I made that mistake, you know, early on uh, with, with like bodybuilding, thinking that I have to have, you know, so many grams of carbohydrates before exercise, after exercise in order to have put on muscle, right, for example. So that's a, that's a big mistake. Meal timing. I, I didn't take into consideration, you know, you know, you read these fitness magazines and you, you to hop on bodybuilding.com forums back when the internet, you know, kind of first started coming online in the early 2000s. And, you know, we didn't, we, it was all about calories, energy, and energy out. And I realized that the circadian biology, when we eat is really important, um, like food, just like light, entrains our internal biological systems and clocks. So I think that's a really important point that I wish I would have known earlier. And I think a lot of people don't really realize, you know, in this intermittent fasting era, and I, there's a ton of benefits, obviously, to intermittent fasting and compressing your feeding window. But I feel like people's meal timing is so erratic. Some days they skip breakfast, some days they have breakfast, some days they fast all day, you know, and I, I think we need to be a little bit more consistent. So in this intermittent fasting kind of lexicon, uh, a, a part of that is time restricted feeding. And, and so it's a subset of intermittent fasting. And, and there's just so much more research coming out about that. So um, I, I really wish I would have known about that earlier and try to stress that with people. It's like, okay, it's great to compress your feeding window. And I know like you, you guys just eat one or two meals a day, but I realize that, you know, your digestive capacity, um, you know, go into the bathroom, sleep, everything seems to be a little bit better when we try to have our meal timing and sleep wake cycles a little bit more consistent, obviously travel and life gets in the way, things along those lines. So yeah, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that, that I wish, uh, and I think a mindset thing too, I thought now that I'm, I'm going to be 37 in a month, I kind of thought that, uh, wow, my, my exercise performance is just, it's only going to get worse from here on out. Right. And so I think, uh, but, but you're, you guys are great examples of this, you know, just really pushing the needle as you age. So I think setting up self-limiting beliefs can really hurt you in life, especially when it comes to physical activity. So just realizing and 
a mutual friend of ours, uh, Stan Efforting, really kind of instilled in this in my head, you know, it was like the body is so regenerative. I mean, he's hurt his hamstring, he's hurt his back, he's done, Mark Bell, how many surgeries has he had? I mean, so we need to realize that we can continue, as long as we fuel the machine, our body healthily, I feel like we can really recover and recuperate and put stress on our body in a physical sense and still adapt and cause, you know, necessary adaptations to recover throughout the lifespan. So that's one thing that I've really I never say to myself, you know, I'm getting older or I'm close to 40, you know, things like that. A lot of people kind of will say to themselves, I'm strong for an old guy or, you know, and I try not to even let that get into my subconscious or my mind because that just sets you up for failure. I know so many people in their 40s, 50s that are really crushing it. Uh, interviewed a bodybuilder, powerlifter in Northern California, Homi uh, Shabai, and he's 69 years old and he can deadlift over 315 pounds. Um, and so his goal is just to continue doing that, right? I mean, he's, he can squat three plates as well. It's amazing at 69. So um, yeah, just that mental belief that the mind is so much powerful than I think we give credit to. We, and we talk a lot about nutrition, don't, you know, very important, obviously nutrition, very important exercise, but our mindset and our beliefs is, is huge. Yeah, Mike, I think a few things that you said uh, resonated with me in the sense that I think like a lot of times when I see folks who are kind of hard charging athletes, like well into their 40s and even 50s, uh, uh, the, the things that usually stick out to me are like they're usually pretty consistent. They're consistent in that they kind of have a, a process that they know has worked for them that, that they found out through probably trial and error, or keeping their ears open and things like that. And then they also tend to have a routine like a routine for like eating a routine for when they work out a routine for when they go to bed and things like that. And, and it doesn't have to be like an absolute, this happens every day like this, but more often than not, they're kind of on that, that pathway. And that really, I think establishes that, that consistency and that, that kind of belief that it's going to work. And then you don't get as tied up into kind of the, the hearsay about, Oh, now I'm 40 years old. I should expect to decline. And that I think becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think like once you hit 40, you're going to start dipping slowly and surely, then, you know, it pro you probably will. <laughs> so it is interesting to kind of, to watch the folks who are kind of pushing through some of those barriers. You hit on a great point. And I think a lot of us are looking for, a lot of people in general are looking for that magic pill, that magic, is, is it this exercise that I'm missing or is it this diet? But you hit on it right there, Zach, is that consistency, the C word, you know, and I think a lot of us, um, you know, we just need to make really consistent, congruent decisions and, and, and know that that over time, I mean, if you look at it, if anyone that's flown over the Grand Canyon, you know, talk about Cayman, Arizona, or Kingman, sorry, um, you know, you, you know that water carved that over years and years and years through consistency. And so I think that's one of the things that I've learned. You know, if I uh, take too much time off, not that I've ever really done that, but if I get an injury, it's so much harder to get back into the swing of things, whether it's on the bike, which I used to do competitive bike racing or deadlifting, powerlifting, it's so hard. So that's the big message that I encourage people to is try to be consistent. And, and like you said, people that are super fit, I used to live in Boulder, Colorado, and there was a lot of trained with a lot of Ironmen, you know, Matty Reed, for example, Ben Day, uh, a lot of, you know, competitive athletes. And, and they had this routine every single day, right? It's they got up, they ate, they trained, they ate, you know, and that's how they were able to really perform at a very high level over a long period of time. And so it's, um, it's not sexy to talk about consistency, right? But uh, it really does work. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, just, uh, yeah, looking to those groups are, are always a good compass for me. And I think a lot of people probably too, I think it gets, it can get difficult though for, especially when someone's 
kind of first getting into it? Because it seems like now there's just so much availability to see what other people are doing. And then not only where they're at, but the variety of different things they do. And the hardest part I think I have when I'm talking to someone who's just starting that journey is these all can be kind of great things, but doing them all at once from where you're at at a starting position can sometimes be overwhelming and set you back. So like, I think that that kind of goes into a little bit about like, you know, how much of the, the, the time restricted eating or fasting and stuff do you want to be doing at the beginning as you're also stressing your body and your mind in new ways too. And sometimes it's just about kind of what I like to call micro stressing and kind of getting yourself where you want to be over time. But that takes a lot of patience and uh, kind of like the, your Grand Canyon example, that's sometimes the hardest thing to convince people of that. You, you, you might want to have that end goal in, in the back of your mind, but if you focus on that too much, it can become kind of a really long, steep battle that you need to break down into small pieces rather than trying to think about where you want to be ultimately all the time. That's such a great point. You know, I think you, you highlighted something. So many people now, because the information is so accessible through social media, we're changing so many different things, variables all at once, like major dietary shifts, which can be very helpful, obviously, major exercise swings. And so you kind of sometimes if, if maybe, um, you know, something's not working or you're not getting the results that you expected, some people will blame it. Like keto didn't work for me. Carnivore didn't work for me. You're like, well, what else did you change at that particular moment in time? So I think that's a mistake that even as people like ourselves that are into the research, we're talking with people that are constantly kind of moving the needle. Uh, we need to be mindful of this idea that, you know, well, if you change a million things at once, like how do you know which variable is actually doing the work? And so, um, you know, going back to, you know, Sean's initial question, like what, what mistakes have you made or you know, what, what things would you share with people is getting blood work twice a year. So I like to get a comprehensive metabolic panel, CBC differential, you know, look at all the liver function tests, iron, TIBC, ferritin, et cetera. And this is another thing, unfortunately, some, as you guys know, some doctors kind of run to skimpy panels nowadays. And so you can't really glean too many insights from that. So um, I have a YouTube video on kind of the labs that I recommend through mentors that have taught me what's really kind of a great panel, which all conventional labs, you know, Quest, LabCorp, and so forth tend to offer. So um, that's one thing that I recommend. So then when you move the needle in a big direction, whether it's diet, exercise, sleep, et cetera, you can start to really kind of see if things are getting out of whack, for example. Um, like for some women, they become anemic when they crank up their exercise volume. That's really important. Um, you know, things like that. I, I know is for some men, as they get a little bit older, they start to accumulate more iron. So I definitely recommend people, even if they're physically active, to donate blood periodically if they're, you know, RBC and hemoglobin hematocrit are starting to creep up. So just small things. And this is like a $200 every six month investment. So most people can do that and their insurance covers that. So let me ask you, um, you know, cause you, you and, and, and Zach, we all are you know, basically athletes and we're, we're not, we're, you know, by definition, we're kind of in the minority. I mean, most people aren't, I mean, most people, you know, well, I mean, maybe more people listening to this positive podcast actually care about their health. So you might have a higher percentage, but the general population, and perhaps we've got some, some, some amount of those people listening, uh, they're not going to be athletes. They're not going to go out and run 100 miles. They're not going to go, you know, deadlift and, and do this stuff. And so how do we, I mean, because um, I, I certainly value the benefit of exercise, particularly strength training and cardiovascular conditioning. I know all of us tend to do that, but there are many people out there that they're just never going to, they're never going to be, you know, in the gym, you know, five, six days a week doing that stuff. And so what do you think is, a, you know, but then the other side of the coin, there are people that never do anything. I mean, they're, I mean, for exercise for them is, is, you know, walking around the house. And so 
What do you think is a minimum effective dose that people need to do for, for health, not, not for athletic accomplishment? For, I mean, what, do we, what should we be doing? And, and, you know, what types of things should the average person be doing, uh, given that their only goal is just to not be sick? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, I mean, if you look at the research, I mean, I think daily activity is really important. So I think at least 30 minutes of some movement. And, um, you know, and so that can be just walking. And so one of the things actually that's, that's kind of cool. So we live in Kirkland. My daughter's school is about it's three quarters of a mile. We walked all for the, her school year just ended. Um, so she's in summer camp now. We walked every single day to and from school all but six days out of the entire, you know, school first grade year. And so we saw all these parents. I mean, I mean we, we live in a kind of a, a neighborhood where there's, you know, they're bigger lots, but then they're flipping them and putting these duplexes in. So we see a lot of the same people and they would just drive their kid, drive right by us. And, and it was like every single day, it's like, wow, you can get in an extra 8,000 steps every day, you and your child by just walking to school. And so I was thinking about on, on some of my rest days, you know, that was my activity. It's just, you know, it was 8,000 steps. And of course I would, you know, we had pigs, chickens, turkeys, and things like that, which brings up another point that uh, I think part of the reason why people don't get enough, even recreational activity, like just moving around, uh, things like that, because you can get food delivered to you nowadays. Amazon Prime. I mean, there's great companies that we both support like butcherbox.com, which is awesome for grass-fed beef, et cetera. But, you know, you can order these products and, and you literally don't need to leave your home, which I think on one side, it's very you know, you can save time, right? So it's great on, on that side. But on the other side, it kind of can, you know, entrain this complacency and, and you don't have to go out there and forage for food necessarily or go look for stuff, go meet a farmer, which I encourage people to do. And so, yeah, I, I think the, the bare minimum and the research shows this, um, you know, even if you do exercise though, you still need to move. And so there's, you know, people that do recreational activity, you guys have all seen kind of the the new mantra, you know, uh, sitting is the new smoking, things like that. So even people that are training, like for an event, they train an hour a day. And if they sit at a desk job for the next eight, 10, 12 hours, their risk of sudden cardiac death and diabetes and inflammation is, is higher. So I think constant movement, and you're just sending that stimulus to the muscle. Hey, we're here to burn adipose tissue. We're here to burn fat. Um, it balances blood sugar. You know, I went to a vegan restaurant, actually, I don't know if you guys saw this YouTube video. It, people were kind of pissed at me. So there's this really popular vegan restaurant in Seattle. So I had my continuous glucose monitor on and I was just very curious, you know, like we hear all this stuff on the internet, plant-based diet is the best diet in the world, you know, meat rots in your colon, all that sort of stuff. So I'm like, all right, we're going to go to this popular vegan restaurant. And I have my 24 hour glucose monitor on, did a normal, you know, kind of my normal keto diet, you know, for the day I had one meal prior to that at lunch, went to the vegan restaurant. It spiked my glucose over 106 to up to the, the max was 160 milligrams per deal. Uh, and so, you know, for me, that was pretty high. I mean, the only way that I even get it that high is through sauna or sometimes in a post-exercise window, if I'm doing a lot of sprints, a lot, a lot of glycolytic work. So I was kind of freaking out because, you know, I realized that's fairly high. I was, you know, I was about to go to bed. It was at nine 30 at night. So I was like, all right, well, what I'm going to do is just do a brisk walk with my dogs around my neighborhood. So it's, you know, about 10 minute walk. It dropped my glucose down to 84. Okay. So just j literally just a walk, which if you have prosthetic legs. I mean, if you, you have hip injury, I, I bet you could do the same walk that I did. Like, like most people could do this and it moves your, I mean, think about the metabolic effect of like, you know, disposing of glucose within the muscle, sensitizing insulin. I mean, there's a lot of different cellular biology that occurs through exercise. So to me, that was so profound. And I realized that, you know, anyone can do this. And, you know, so my dad has been big on that. After we eat, we go for walks. And so that's just what I grew up kind of, it's in my mind. 
And so I encourage all my clients to do that, especially if they don't go to the gym frequently. But, you know, Sean, I think where, why is it, why, why do people not make a habit of this? I think part of it is the social connection. So, so they go to a gym and they don't know anyone, no one that they know goes there. So they have no friends, nothing keeping them from, you know, not going. And so I think that's a big part of that. So if you're wondering why you do Pilates and you stop, you do yoga, then you stop, you run, then you stop, try to befriend someone that does the sport that you want to do. And so for some people, deadlifting, they don't get into a flow state with deadlifting. They're like, why? I don't like deadlifting. So what I encourage people to do is just whatever exercise gets you into that flow state. So you're not thinking about all the problems and bills and everything that you have to do. That's probably the best exercise for you. And for some people, it's endurance athletics. Like life goes away. All life's problems. When you, I know when I'm on a bike and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, I'm having a great time, right? So that gets me into a flow state. So I think, you know, people try to put a square peg into a round hole and they realize like, man. And so try to figure out what gets you into a flow state, number one. And number two, try to implement some element of gaming and or socialization. So if you're like, wow, I know I suck at going to the gym. I hate going to the gym, but I know it's good for me. I can do a selfie or I can have someone film me or I can whatever. And it, that creates this cognitive, it prevents this cognitive dissonance, right? So if you go to the gym, you post it on social media, even if it's just doing a deadlift with the bar, whatever it may be, just some small little progress. If you start to make the private public, then you realize that you're going to have to like follow through on that decision. So you're not going to go post a picture on social media, then go drink a bottle of whiskey. I mean, maybe you would, but mo- that creates cognitive dissonance, right? So I think we can leverage social media and leverage some of the gaming effect and use these, these different apps um, to help us make more consistent, congruent decisions. And so that's what I found like with bike racing, it was great because Every, you know, every, we'd had, we, uh, in Boulder, Colorado, there was a Tuesday and Thursday night ride, really fast rides. A lot of pros would race. And we see, I saw all the same people. So we're talking, having a good time. Hey, what'd you do this week? Blah, blah, blah. Where are you racing this weekend? What are you guys doing? So it was so fun. So it was like, I was there for the exercise, but really more for the socialization. And so we had a great time. Then on, you know, on a, on a Saturday race, you know, three hour, you know, road race, something like that. You see all your buddies, you're in the pack, you're talking. So I think people associate gym. It just has to be hard work. It's all painful. It's all crappy. I don't want to do that. You know, you build up pain tolerance over time. And so, you know, trying to weave in again, that flow state and the social connection and kind of creating these congruent decisions by making the private public are just great ways to keep even the healthiest of people, you know, in the routine. I mean, there's many days I'm sure Sean and and Zach, you can agree with us where you just don't want to train. You're tired, work's been busy, but you go anyway because you are an athlete, right? That's what in your mind. And I think it takes a lot of repetition for people to realize that. And you do what athletes do. Sometimes you don't want to put in the work. There's, you know, Jeff Bezos, probably there are certain days where he doesn't want to check his email and do work, but you know what? He's a CEO of Amazon. Like he has to do the work. And so I think part of that is realizing that it's not always going to be fun. And, you know, a great book for people. I'm sure you guys have read it or heard of it. David Goggins book, You Can't Hurt Me. I know it's been super popular, but you know, he talks about just doing things that suck every day. Uh, because it, it sharpens your, your, your grit, right? And you can become uncommon a bunch, amongst a bunch of different people that are doing the, the same old thing every single day. So um, there's days I don't want to go on my cold plunge. I have a cold plunge outside. It's just a 110-gallon horse trough. Actually, pretty much every morning, I don't want to go in there. But I go in there to sharpen the saw and realize that if I can jump in this ice-cold water, which, by the way, uh, where we live, our furnace broke in 2016, 
And I said, Deanna, we're, my wife, you know, we're not, we're not going to fix the furnace. We're just going to tough <laughs> this thing out because uh, her mom's from the UK. And she was telling me, you know, in London, they didn't have a heater in the winter. Like you just dealt with that. And so I think, again, we're really complacent as humans. And uh, we have, you know, the, the electric car that self-drives itself. We order our food, you know, get it delivered. You know, we have a personal trainer that tells us what workout to do. Look, I, I get it, right? But we need, I think, um, humanity and animals, like there's strife in life. And part of that makes us better, more compassionate people. And we can serve the world in a better, in a, in a better way. So I, I try to infuse as much suck into my life as I can. Yeah, and I think um, the interesting thing about that, is, well, two things actually. Uh, the one thing is like when you talk about kind of high level achievers, putting themselves in a position to do something they don't want instead of making up an excuse and bailing out on it. I think that's partly just because like you do something enough, you kind of find out like, well, this is what works for me to get to where I want to be. So even if I don't want to do it, I know it's a necessary piece to the puzzle. And I mean, someone like Jeff Bezos, he's probably got a pretty good uh, uh, trail of evidence as to what works and what doesn't for him and how hard he has to work to kind of keep things going. And the same thing with someone who's been an athlete for you know, a decade or plus, they, they've done the training programs before they've done all that stuff. They know what they have to do. So when they kind of take a shortcut, it's pretty painfully obvious in their eyes. And it's, it's interesting how that motivates you and how that really kind of keeps you, keep you, keeps you sharp. Like you said. Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. One thing that I want to add on to that is um, you want to get to the point where if you skip a workout or you skip a, you have junk food it kind of irritates you and it, and it pisses you off a little bit. And so that's kind of where, where I'm at. Like if I skip leg day, because I've had a, a back injury uh, from deadlifts, which deadlifts are my favorite exercise. So it really sucked for a long time, but it was a blessing in disguise because that's what got me into road racing and bike racing. Anyway, um, there are some days where my back kind of is tight from, you know, whether it's traveling, sitting too much, not doing my, you know, you know, my maintenance exercises first thing in the morning, stuff like that. And uh, I skip deadlifts and it, and it, or leg day, and it just pisses me off because I know I probably could have pushed through, but I was being a puss. And so we, we want to get to that point where, where you start to get irritated with yourself. Like you knew you could have done it, but you chickened out or you didn't do it. And so I think you, you have to like, just meant it's it's a mental game and so uh, you know uh, it's hard to say that to someone who's never been to the gym or never you know been an athlete but you, i think it's it's good training and here's the thing it, there's a lot of carryover in life too there's some nights that i don't want to read to my daughter i'd rather do research but that i know over time that investment is going to help her be a better child right so there's a lot of things in life that we don't want to do and i just want people to realize that even athletes, there are some days they don't want to train. They feel tired too, but they push through. And so it's a big kind of mental shift where people realize like, oh, wow, yeah, but, but you like going to the gym. Yeah, I do. But there's, you know, there's many days I don't like to. So um, it's just a mental thing. And, and I think the same thing goes with cooking healthy food. Some people say, I suck at cooking. I don't like cooking. I don't enjoy cooking. Look, I, I cook all my own meal. I mean, occasionally we go out to dinner. We're usually disappointed when we do, but we still go out, right? And uh, there's many times I don't like cooking. There's many times I don't like feeding my chickens, but we you just do it anyway. And so I think it's a something that we just got to push through as, as humans. Yeah. And when people say I don't like cooking, I tell them just to go to a slow cooker. There you go. <laughs> so easy, right? <laughs> yeah. Great point. Hey, Mike, you, let's talk a little bit because you brought something up about, and it says, you said, you know, you were talking to, uh, 
gentleman asked you about, you know, optimizing a carnivore diet. And it doesn't have to be specific to a carnivore diet, but I do think you bring up the point because there is, you know, and I'm in the, I've seen this carnivore community and there's controversy about what's the right diet, how to do it, you know, protein, fat, this and that. But let's talk about athletes versus non-athletes and how you, you know, because I assume you talk to people and, and how you advise people to, uh, you know, vary their diet based on, on demands of exercise. And, and I think one thing that's also sort of very contentious right now is the uh, protein requirements. So I want to know where you fall at on, on the whole uh, protein is evil and we need to minimize it to avoid cancer and dying early or protein is essential. We need it to preserve muscle and function as we have a longer a more productive health span. So let's talk a little bit about sort of in general, how we may, may customize diets for different activity levels. And then, and then the whole topic of protein, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, w- I would love to talk about that. And I think it's really important for people in the keto space because when they hear protein, they hear gluconeogenesis, you know, glucose is bad. So protein's bad. And I think they're really confused about chemistry. And so anyone that's, that's into keto needs to realize like if you're in ketosis, gluconeogenesis is happening. So you shouldn't be really be scared of protein. So that's a mistake that I personally made. You know, when I first started getting really excited about keto back in 2015, a buddy of mine was telling me about how when he went keto, it improved his heart rate variability and it instantly had my attention. And so I noticed better sleep scores, better recovery, higher heart rate variability. Um, and so my protein intake, I mean, it varies based upon my activity. That's just kind of what, what I do and how I feel. And I know a lot of people want numbers, want macros, they want recipes and everything like that. And, uh, you know, that's just not how I personally operate. I think a lot of us have kind of lost touch with our bodies, our intuition. Um, so th- that's how I adjust things. And I kind of start out with, um, you know, a higher than the RDA. I think the RDA, what, 0.8 grams per pound of body weight, something like that. So, so I err more on the side of like two grams per kilogram body weight. Yeah. It's, it's actually 0.8 per kilo. So it's, it's oh, per kilo. pretty darn low in my view. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. Um, but what I found, you know, higher protein, definitely, uh, what I found is strength recovery, uh, everything along those lines is much better. I, I'm not concerned about uh, protein simulating mTOR causing cancer. I mean, look, every time you eat a meal, uh, unless you're eating liquid fat, you know, pure C8, you're probably simulating mTOR to some effect. Um, that's what exercise is for. That's what fasting is for to mitigate some of that. And so humans, animals have this feast and famine cycle. So I, I'm really not concerned about, um, you know, how protein is going to necessarily cause uh, cancer. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, we did a uh, really good podcast with Dr. Keith Barr out of UC Davis, who does a very research on uh, animal longevity and protein and, and mTOR. And it's very much, there is a differential stimulation of mTOR depending upon what your diet is and what you're doing and exercise 
you know, we want mTOR turned on when it comes to building muscle. And, you know, so you get the protein, you do the resistance training or the exercise, and, you know, you don't stimulate the liver, the, the mTOR in other places like the liver and other places where it may be problematic. And so it's not like most things that we discover, it's not a simple binary on off switch. I mean, it's nuanced, it depends on what's going on. And so we have, uh, well, as you know, you've been in this health space for a long time and you see all these sort of new concepts come out and everybody rushes to the extreme of one thing. You know, oh, oh my God, all insulin's bad. I can't ever eat protein. I've got to eat all fat. Or, you know, this is what we see, this knee-jerk reaction. Instead of just saying, let's listen to the, the, the macroscopic picture, you know, let's not lose the forest for the trees. Let's just look what's going on in the body. Um, what do you, let, let's talk a little bit more about exercise now, because, you know, you've been a competitive, uh, you know, uh, cyclist, or I guess mountain bike, was it mountain bike stuff? Yeah, I guess. Ro- road cycling. Yeah, road, road cycling too. Okay. And, and, and you've had an experience in, in weightlifting and stuff like that, and, you, and you, you've got this high intensity health. To me, that that implies you like to push yourself a little bit. Do you do you find that and you know do you find that there's a particular type of exercise that you favor? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I really, I, I go back and forth. You know, it's funny. It's like my body type. I'm never going to be a, a record holding power lifter, and I'm but I'm yeah I'm too big to be uh, like a race in the Tour de France, right? So I'm kind of this in between where, but but I feel best um, when I'm lifting weights, you know, three to five days a week, and, and so uh, and then throwing in a little bit of of endurance on top of that, baking that in. So our, you know, in our backyard, so to speak, we have a, a network of trails. So every night after dinner, unless it's pissing rain here in Seattle, we go hiking with with the dogs and my daughter. So but yeah, I, I feel best with resistance training with moving, you know, really um, a powerlifting style uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, really kind of ma- semi-maxing out pretty much at to 70 to 90% most weeks. So nothing super light, not a lot of accessories. So compound movements. And with doing that, I think it, it lends itself kind of your, back to your second question a little while ago is what about carbohydrate intake? What about protein? Stuff like that. I find that I personally can, and I haven't done strict carnivore, uh, to be totally fair. Um, I think that kind of changes a little bit, especially as you adapt over time. Um, but for me personally, what I found is if I'm doing a lot of body parts like deadlift, squat, pull-ups, things like that, back exercises, uh, I tend to do a little bit better with post-workout carbohydrates. That's just me personally. Can I do it without carbohydrates? Absolutely. But I find, and I don't know what it is, I get a little bit of a better pump, a little bit of more fullness in the muscle. So that's just me. Maybe I'm too impatient to give carnivore a full six month experiment. I have no problems with doing carnivore. We eat a lot of meat in our family. Uh, My wife actually eats more meat than I do, which is pretty interesting. We can talk about. Um, But yeah, so that's just my personal thing. But I, again, I'm not struggling with obesity. I don't have diabetes. I don't have autoimmunity. So I'm not really worried about some sweet potatoes or butternut squash two days a week in the post-exercise window. And we have raspberries and blueberries that I grow organic and heirloom and all that sort of stuff. So, so when they're available, I eat them. And again, try to pair them with exercise. I'm not having a big bowl of blueberries at 1030 and then going to bed, you know, 20 minutes later, these are in the post-workout window. So I like to customize you know, my carb intake, it commensurate with my exercise intensity, duration, and volume. So if I'm not doing much activity, I don't need a lot of carbohydrates or a lot of dietary fat. It's mostly going to be protein uh, and eggs and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very, very valid and fair point. And, and, and I've said repeatedly, I don't think that there's any reason to suggest that all people need to do a carnivore diet. I think it can be very effective for a whole host of medical issues. I think that many people enjoy it and like doing it. I, th- I do think that you can adapt 
uh, athletically, you know, if you, if you, if you give it time, but I, I again, if you don't need to do, it, I mean, and, and there's a lot of foods that are out there that, you know, within the carnivore community, there's people out there that thinks all vegetables are evil and, you know, all carbohydrates are bad. I don't personally take that approach. I think that we have to be objective about it and say that there are certain foods that potentially can be problematic and no food is, uh, you know, I would be, I would be, I think meat is pretty much a superfood, but I think there's no food out there that is universally going to be uh, optimal for all people, you know, and then, you know, some people argue that meat's in that same category, but so I think that's a very, very, uh, you know, just a reasonable approach. And, I, and like I tell people, some people want to do it just to do it. And I say, why are you doing it? And they're like, well, I want to just try it. So we can try it. But, you know, if you're already in, in great health and great shape and you got no real issues, you know, why, why, why fix, you know, don't fix it if it ain't broke is, is kind of the, you know, thought. Now things change down the road. I mean, you're 37 now, maybe when you're 47, things will be different. You know, when I was, I mean, when I was 37, man, I was eating, whatever and i was training my ass off and i was in good shape you know when when i got to about 42 though then it was uh you know i could not train it you know i then i then i had to radically change my diet and so you know that's another point that people need to understand is you know your nutritional requirements will change with age and time and circumstance and and generally it just changes to where you got to eat better stuff you know, totally. that's that's about all you know, you know no one gets healthier starting to add twinkies into the diet at least you know i, I don't i don't believe that's the case well, you hit on a great point. I think a lot of people don't consider the context and the age. And I, I feel like as people age, they kind of diverge to more of a plant-based diet. They're concerned about longevity and all that. And they don't realize the anti-nutrients and, you know, the, the, and they kind of overlook maybe the potential, you know, gastrointestinal perturbations. And they just associated that with aging. But my wife is going to turn 44 shortly. And uh, she's been mostly carnivore for the past eight months. And man, she's getting leaner and leaner, but stronger. And so I think a lot of people are, uh, even we, we poked fun at it on a recent YouTube video. Her and I occasionally do videos together and people were like, wow, you're so masculine. You're a tranny. You're a real dude. How big's your penis? Like they were saying some really mean stuff. And I just, I was like, Matt, why are you hating on someone who's making good dietary changes? And she doesn't, she's not big. She's 119 pounds. Um, her body weight has stayed the same, but her composition has changed a lot since going mostly carnivore and she eats one meal a day. So she'll, she'll take down like 160, 170 grams of protein in one meal. It's pretty crazy. And, uh, Man, shredded abs, you know, it's, it's amazing. And her hormones, her libido and everything ha has improved. You know, there's this notion that, you know, women, she's done having kids at 43, right? So it's like, you know, menstruation changes. Yeah, she's concerned a little bit, but really for her, her proxies of health are how's my sleep scores. Her deep sleep has skyrocketed. Her heart rate variability, variability through the roof, um, way better than mine, by the way. And her sleep is way better than mine. And her bowel movements, circadian rhythm, everything is like really on point. And so I think the, the, the reason why I want to underscore this end of one example is a lot of people, again, are scared of protein as they age because we know that cancer is kind of a disease of aging to a, a certain point, right? Most young kids outside of genetic aberrations usually don't get cancer. It's really something that happens in the, in the later stages of life. And then they're concerned about protein because mTOR. And need, I think it's important to realize that protein in individuals as they age is even more important because that muscle protein synthesis and so forth, I think it becomes attenuated or desensitized at some level. I'm not an expert on this. And that's where we need to encourage people, especially women to not be scared of protein, uh, particularly if they're athletic as well. And so that's where if you're physically active, you're doing the fasting and all that, you need to take down some serious protein. And uh, yeah, I, I've just been super impressed with uh, you know, the carnivore diet in, in terms, you know, how it's affected, you know, bowel movements, 
exercise recovery. Um, when you were in Seattle, Sean, I was telling you that I was training. I just started training like two weeks before I saw you. So I didn't really give it a lot of like how you would normally train for a bike race and do the, you know, the long, slow distance, build the capillary densities and all that. I kind of jumped into it after doing powerlifting. But anyway, did this 45 mile bike race. It's called the ski to seat. And before that, I was like, you know, I really wanted to bring a steak with me, but I didn't know how the heck I was going to cook a steak because you have to like, you know, it's a relay kind of thing and you have to be on top of the mountain at five in the morning. So I'm like, I'm not going to bring my cast iron skillet and all this sort of stuff. I'm just going to eat this thing raw. And it was the best damn decision I could have made. My, my recovery after that, normally after I do an all out effort for like over two hours, my central nervous system is pretty shot. So I had this raw steak and these people were looking at me because you know, endurance athletes, right? They're eating muffins and carb loading and having goose and this and that. I just had this raw steak and I, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating, man. I felt alive as I was chewing that there's some, I don't know if it's endorphins, cortisol, I don't know what, micro RNA from the, the meat, whatever it is, I was like super fired up and ready to go. I normally didn't, I normally take like caffeine with me, like in a little sachet, didn't even need the caffeine. I was super fired up. Uh, I will say that it took a little bit longer for me to kind of warm up my legs uh, for whatever reason. But uh, once I was warm, man, I was on. And so that was to me, something that seven years ago, I don't know if I would have done because I would have had this mindset that you need a certain amount of carbohydrates to perform for an endurance athletic event, but it was fun. Yeah. My, I mean, if you look back, you know, historically, I mean, there's all kinds of accounts, you know, pre 1950s, you know, where athletes would, I mean, they eat friggin' raw heart before they get into a boxing ring or drink blood or you know, there's a guy named, uh, Oh heck, I'm thinking, I wish I could remember the guy's name now. Art Shrub, I think. And he was the, uh, right around uh, 1890, 1900, Tim Noakes brought him up, and uh, he held every single like running record from 100 meters to 10,000 meters in the world at simultaneously, and he was basically on a carnivore diet. So I mean, this is you know, I mean we I mean we we sort of sort of have forgotten how nutritious this is for athletic performance. It's not like I said. I mean, you know, well, you know, you, you, you talked about Stan Efferding, and I mean, Stan puts all of his athletes on copious amounts of red meat. I mean, he has, you know, Thor Bjornsson, he's got Brian Shaw, uh, all these guys that are the biggest, strongest people in the world, and they are eating five, six, seven pounds of meat a day. Uh, you know, and granted, he is a supplement with carbohydrates primarily to get the caloric take up, intake up because it is, as you probably realize, it's difficult to eat a whole, just a whole bunch of meat unless you're somebody like Molly Schuyler who can put down 22 pounds in one setting. But uh, yeah, we've had her on the podcast. It's pretty amazing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I find that, uh, you know, it, it really does enhance uh, performance and recovery. And Zach has found that after he does his 100-mile runs and his legs aren't swelling up and he's not beat to pieces, you know, because he's giving himself recovery. Field. Because you think about that muscle turnover from that endurance activity – Endurance activity beats your muscles up more than, than lifting weights does typically because you're, you're on it, you're using them for two, three, four, five, six, or in Zach's case, it's 12 to 24 hours. And so you've got all this muscle damage. And, you know, and Zach and, you know, Zach, if you want to relate your, your sort of experience with uh, recovery, I think it's been it's helpful. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's fascinating to me. And I think it's the way I describe it is like for me, when I switched from a high carb diet to a low carb diet, that was one of the biggest things I noticed from a recovery standpoint was just not necessarily that the two, three days post event, I felt like amazing. Like I was ready to start training again, but like once I would hit that point where the, you know, the inevitable muscle soreness has, has dissipated, 
like I could get back into another routine again and hit quality workouts a lot sooner than I would have. And, um, you know, when I'm doing primarily carnivore post, post, uh, event, it's, it's, it like kind of cleans up even a little bit of the noise that would maybe still be there following more or less of a strict ketogenic diet. And, uh, you know, my most recent example, I guess I did the San Diego hundred, uh, two and a half weeks ago at this point. And, you know, I took a few days off after the race and then did a few like easy runs that week after the race, just to kind of see where things were at. And, but basically come Monday, that following week, I was ready to start my next training program. There was no signs of like residual fatigue, both physically or mentally. And, um, I mean, I felt great now a week and a half into it and I don't think it's going to like regress or anything like that. So I just think, and you know, you can look at these things through multiple windows and, it's like, can carbohydrate give you a little bit of a boost? And it's like, yeah, it, it, it probably can. Um, but uh, you have to balance that with how quickly you're going to recover as well. So if you're bouncing back quicker, keeping carbs low, especially on recovery sessions, recovery days, like, you know, if that's going to get you back to building more volume within the context of the system you're trying to optimize, then I think that's something worth, worth looking into. And, and then, I mean, it just keeps going and going. If you keep going down that rabbit hole, I think sleep quality is another huge one. Um, and that was just a big game changer for me with low carb was, uh, just sleeping consistently throughout the night. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I actually stuck to it and didn't, you know, bail out on it earlier on. And when I first started kind of doing a low carb approach, so it's really interesting. And I did want to follow up my with you, with your, with your wife, when she was, uh, it, did you say she is pretty strict carnivore? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, she, she, she doesn't have an autoimmune disease or mm -hmm. any really compelling reason to be strict carnivore other than she's noticed that there's less water retention, less inflammation, and she's getting stronger. Um, so, so she's not really some days. I mean, we, here's the thing, here's my bias. We grow vegetables, right? And so part of that, we give the vegetables to the chickens and the pigs that we don't eat. But part of it is like, oh man, we got all these greens here. We'll eat some of it, right? So that's just kind of, if we weren't growing vegetables, we would probably be plantless. I mean, to be totally honest with you, outside of maybe a, the occasional berry. But yeah, she's fairly strict carnivore, but I'd say has plants maybe two, three days a week at most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of where I've been at this most recent training block. I mean, it's been only two and a half weeks, but I kind of reset on pretty strict carnivore for about a week. And since then, as I've been ramping training back up, I just haven't brought the carbs back yet. And um, to basically to like 99% efficiency, I guess you could call it. Uh, because like, like, kind of like you, I'm not like gonna necessarily like fret about a little bit here and there if it happens to be and find its way in. Uh, but it's the strictest I would say I've been as I started a, a training block right now. And it seems like things are moving along pretty good, but um, the sleep side of things I, I'm curious is when, when you said uh, your wife's deep sleep improved, was she tracking that with anything or was it just kind of like she was noticing like when she woke up, she was fresher or like she was just more soundly asleep when she did, did go to bed at night. Great question. We use it or ring. We've had that since 2016, I think. So yeah, we do, a fair amount of biomarker testing. I used to use the elite HRV for HRV first thing in the morning, but then after like seven months, it just kind of broke on me. So we mm -hmm. rely a lot on, on the aura ring for data in terms of sleep architecture and HRV. But yeah, for both of us, you know, that's definitely improved, you know, kind of scaling out the carbs. And, and that's really surprising, you know, because 
Yeah. Uh, you know, common wisdom would suggest that it should be the other way around, but it's amazing. Your recovery is just so much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of duly interested in deep sleep quality. Cause I think like one metric to look at that would be fun would be like, well, how many, you know, minutes of deep sleep are you getting following a certain approach? And then how much does it increase or decrease or stay the same when you're following a different approach? And then the other thing I think is interesting too, would be just like, you have these situations, I mean, life happens sometimes and you have a couple of days where you have to get up earlier or stay up later than you wanted. And you're, you maybe fall an hour, hour and a half short. And I'm curious, like if you have a couple of days like that, if then when you do take, you know, you take a night to just really kind of catch up, like does the diet you're following impact how much your body kind of makes up for that with additional deep sleep on say that third night versus um, maybe someone following a, more standard diet does they do they just kind of take that shot and never really completely bounce back from it or it just takes longer or something like that it's a it's an interesting metric oh totally i think i agree with you i think it's the latter i think people don't make especially like the weekend warrior athletes you know that are out there they don't make a lot of correlation or connection between diet and performance and recovery and so they're just like oh man i must be getting older i need more espresso or something along those lines so that's where i think the data tracking can be super helpful but Uh, You know, going back to, you know, how do we introduce this to more people? Because it's funny, I had Paul Saladino over before he left Seattle and I had a bunch of uh, my close friends that are very conventional uh, in terms of their dietary approaches and and carbohydrates and, you know, that whole, uh, you know, you need carbohydrates for mitochondrial function at the cellular energy level and all that, right? So it's been interesting, like hearing like the, the kickbacks and people immediately just throw up these blinders and they're very biased and they don't want to hear anything else. They're just like, what about this? What about fiber? What about phytonutrients? What about they automatically like their, their mind is like closed down. It's been so interesting observing uh, certain people's behavior, you know, when, when you present these ideas to them and tell them uh, and they, they immediately come up with a million and one reasons why it's bad, but yet we're sitting here telling everyone like all these, you know, our own stories and and the stories are accumulating. So I don't know how we're going to break through these people, but it's been super interesting to see like uh, the reactions on people's faces. Yeah. I mean, it, and I, I certainly share that frustration with, uh, you know, just saying, Hey, look, just try and see if it works. And, 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 you know, I think the problem we have just, and I've, I've said this and many other people have nutrition science in general is just, not been very good about about learning what we need to learn i mean it's it's got so many you know you know we and we and we criticize epidemiologic studies and social studies and even the rcts i mean there's there's a lot of design uh, flaws in there they're not applicable to everybody there's so many different things that it's almost i mean literally it's almost impossible to tell a person what the right diet is for them i mean really you're not going to get it from a study the only way the only study you're going to get it from is hey try this out and see what happens for you be objective about it and, and measure what is actually probably relevant to you because, you know, I, you know, unlike so many people out there that tell people they're going to live forever or they're going to add 20 years to your life. I, I just, I, I'll never make that claim. I'll say we can get you healthier today and let's just keep doing it, doing the, doing it, you know, doing it today, doing it tomorrow and, and continue to adjust as you need. And I think that's honestly the most practical, realistic advice I can give anybody. And anybody's out there saying they're going to live to be, 180 years old because they take, you know, 200 supplement pills and, you know, or, or, you know, they're going to limit mTOR to X amount of stimulations. I mean, I mean, I think that's just, I mean, that's, that's, you know, kind of like reading the, the uh, tea leaves or something like that. That's astrology at this point. And I just, 
you know, I, I don't doubt that there's going to continue to be innovations and advancements that will continue to, um, you know, ward off symptoms. And I mean, there's people that'll pay a lot of money for that stuff. And there's going to be people that are going to be employed doing the, uh, you know, whispering the, the magic things in their ear. And, uh, you know, that that's just the way it's going to be. But I mean, the real take home message, I think most people should understand is it's really basic. Sleep well, eat well, exercise well, mitigate stress, you know, you know, I mean, and, and, and induce some stress, like you talk about, whether it's thermic stress, whether it's, you know, exercise related stress, and there's good stress and bad stress. And let's talk about a little bit of some of the stuff that, that kind of is controversial. I mean, um, you know, I think the circadian biology stuff is becoming more and more uh, accepted as, you know, something that makes a difference. And I certainly echo your point. I, I try to, I try to, you know, time my meals when the sun's up, basically. I try not to eat too late, too close to bedtime. I try to get, you know, light stimulation when I can. I mean, there's, there's, we just had the guys from Juve who have a red light company that, that do that stuff. But what are your thoughts around it? And, and if you can talk a little bit more about the importance of these other things outside of diet, exercise, and sleep. Let's talk about cold and, and heat stimulation and light, light stuff because I think that's a, an emerging topic that is probably – I'm still trying to figure out the relevance of it. Like wh- how important is that relative to good food and good exercise? And what's been your experience? Or maybe you've talked to other people that can, that can kind of help inform us. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the thermal stress is just part of, part of the human condition, right? I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, live in this temperature controlled environment, right? And, and I think that's probably a little bit unnatural. There would be nights where we'd be shivering, there'd be days where we'd be very hot. And so I think just uh, living in harmony with your local environment, wherever in the heck that is, you know, and you don't need to be a hero. I mean, if you live in uh, Alaska, you know, turn on your heater for goodness sakes, right? But I think having a little bit of thermal stress can help. And I think it's, it's all related. I mean, if you kind of look at the mechanism of the uncoupling protein and so forth, it's, it's basically a mitochondrial phenomena uh, at some level. And, and there's some central nervous system input and adrenaline and noradrenaline and things like that. But a lot of these things that we've been talking about today, dietary changes, fasting, compressing feeding windows, uh, you know, eating a more lower carbohydrate diet, I think one of the mechanisms that is, that is of interest is the mitochondria. And you, you spoke of the juve light, Sean, and, and, and the, as I understand it, the whole photobiomodulation thing, a primary mechanism of that is again, mitochondrial based. So I think it's just another piece in the wheel, another cog in, in the metabolic wheel that, and I, I throw it out there because people sometimes, I mean, you see on Instagram, either they're lying or something is going wrong, but some of these people are eating pristine diets but their body composition sometimes doesn't reflect that. And so is it, is it a psychosocial stress issue? Is it sleep issue? Is it a lack of exercise stimulation? Uh, could it be this brown adipose tissue? I think it's a piece of the puzzle. So it's kind of interesting, you know, um, if things aren't going in the right direction, I always recommend people try that. And so one of the things that I've been doing for a number of years now, a buddy of mine, Ben Lynch, really instilled this in my mind is, is thermal stress through sauna post-exercise. So I found that to be very effective. Um, if anything, just to kind of calm down the brain. I, and I, I actually read a lot of research in the sauna. I find for whatever reason, I don't know why, how mechanistically, but I find that that research sticks in my mind and it could be brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It could be I'm surprised, you know, when I sit in a sauna and, and you know, we've got, we fortunately I've got one at the house here. Um, I can't breathe, man. I'm sitting there sweating like a, <laughs> <laughs> I know how you do that. But anyway, you get the paper to be all sopping wet. I don't know if you can, you bring your phone in there. I mean, is your phone going to get fried in it a 180 degrees? Yeah, it overheats yeah. quickly. So I, I bring the research. Yeah. And I'm sweating like a pig too, to trust me. But, it, um, 
I just read as much as I can. And when I'm sweating all over the place, I just put it down. So it's a way for me to kind of just, you know, carve out some time. I try to, uh, I print out like four or five papers a day. So, you know, old papers back in, you know, 1970s, 1990s about, you know, you, you hear things like adrenal fatigue. If, if, you, if you have adrenal fatigue, you shouldn't fast or you shouldn't be keto because of cortisol or whatever. So I like to kind of look at some of these earlier studies that show kind of the hormonal effect of fat metabolism and the influence there and dispel some of these myths that we hear about. But yeah, let's do that because I, I often hear people saying, well, if you've got to have carbs, you're going to be, you're going to be stressed out with cortisol levels. What, what, and I say, you know, and, and I really honestly haven't looked in this in great detail, but my understanding is, you know, there's a transient effect when, it's, when you shift dietary things and you might see a spike in cortisol, but I don't believe that's a chronic effect. If you've looked in it, tell me what the research tends to indicate. Yeah, you know, I'm diving into this right now. The, the research is super fascinating. You know, one of the studies was a German feeding study where they had individuals fasting for 16 hours and they gave them pure uh, carbohydrates. So I think it was just a glucose at 80 grams, 80 grams of just avocado. So 80 grams of fat and then protein. And they exerted some sort of physical stress and psychological stress to see what the effect on cortisol would be. And there was like the, 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 in the fat and the protein group, there was no, there's just a blip in cortisol. But in the, group, in the group that had carbohydrates, it like increased uh, two and a half times compared to the baseline and, two and, and over two times greater than the, the cortisol increase in the group that only ate protein and fat. So it seems that if you really want to exacerbate the stress response in cortisol, then eat a lot of carbohydrates. That's the way to go about it. And I started to think about this, Sean. I was going to send you a message. And you know, we, we see the vegans are very sometimes reactive and very emotional and sometimes can be very aggressive. And I was like, I just had to think, I'm like, wonder if there's a correlation there between the carbohydrates they're consuming and just the emotional reactivity because these earlier feeding studies, this was again, published, I think in 1998, German researchers, I can send you the link. And it, it dove me into this, this rabbit hole. Feeding itself raises cortisol. I mean, so if you're like worried about, oh my gosh, keto or carnivore is going to, I have adrenal fatigue. I can't do this. Um, eating in and of itself raises these counter-regulatory hormones called cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline to deal with and repartition some of the fuel that we just ate. So that to me was pretty surprising. So it's like, if you're so worried about cortisol, then maybe fasting would actually be good for you because eating in and of itself raises cortisol. But I think the important thing is, again, it comes back to context. We talked about, you know, if you're a little bit older, you might need to eat cleaner because your recovery is not as good. And what we need to understand is when we're fasting, cortisol and growth hormone are co-secreted. They're secreted around the same time. And tissue, uh, this, this is another study in uh, the Netherlands, I believe. It was, in, I think, 1996. This is a really fascinating study where they had individuals, they injected them with uh, just saline, right? So they had a control group. Then they had another group where they gave them just growth hormone. And they were looking at glycerol and free fatty acids. So that would be a direct marker of adipose tissue lipolysis. And they wanted to see what was going on there. Then when they um, gave them hydrocortisone and growth hormone together, the amount of glycerol and free fatty acids increased substantially over both the, just the control group and then over just the growth hormone and or cortisol group separately. So what scientists have kind of figured out through these different feeding studies and, and doing radioisotope, you know, serial testing and, and so forth is that in the fasted state, you actually want cortisol to be releasing because it's going to make growth hormone for, I don't know the mechanism here. There could be some sort of epigenetic or coat, you know how like the vitamin D and the vitamin A receptor are kind of similar and stuff like that. So there could be some of that going on. But so again, it's just dismiss this whole myth that, oh, you shouldn't fast because it's hard on your adrenals. You're like, well, that's a, 
if I'm fasting, I want, I want glycerol because glycerol from fatty acids being broken down is going to help make glucose. Your brain, certain retinal cells, your red blood cells need glucose. So I want that. Uh, you know, and, and so anyway, it's, I think it's super fascinating. So long story short, feeding in and of itself raises cortisol, right? That's just a natural phenomenon. We know that if you want to spike cortisol, uh, you know, if, if you're going to be in traffic or do a presentation, for example, you don't want to have a bunch of carbohydrates beforehand because that's going to make it, the perceived stress will probably be more amplified due to the, the glucose effects on, on cortisol. And it turns out that if you're fasting, that, um, you, you know, growth hormone and cortisol are co-secreted. So you don't want to negate that. You don't want to block that. You don't want to be scared of it. The body has had years to adapt these mechanisms through natural selection. And so don't be scared of these things. And again, it's something we see perpetuated by probably well-intended health coaches on Instagram, but they don't really necessarily sometimes know the physiology. So anyway, kind of interesting. Hey, Mike, let me, let me just ask you about your routine because, you know, we get a lot of people and we've got, uh, we got Ben Greenfield coming on uh, in a few, I think later, than, later next month, and he does all kinds of wacky stuff. I mean, he's out there injecting stuff into his penis and <laughs> getting juice up his butt and stuff like that. But, so, I mean, this is crazy stuff that most people aren't going to do and whether it has an effect or not, and most people don't have a lifestyle or the means to do that type of thing. But, I mean, you talk about a little bit, you know, sauna, you know, ice baths, Talk to me about like frequency of that stuff for the average person that, you know, could reasonably do this and is not just kind of living as a personal, you know, chemistry experiment or, you know, physiology experiment. So talk to me about what you think, like, I'm not, I hate to use the word optimal, but I think reasonable frequency and dosage of, of things, you know, I mean, obviously we've got diet, um, but let's talk about, you know, what would a norm, what would a, what would be a, a reasonable strategy for somebody to, to employ about these various things, whether it's cold, heat, uh, red, you know, light therapy, diet, exercise. Talk about that if you don't mind. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I mean, there's so many, you know, I was joking with a friend of mine. He was like, dude, with all this stuff, with the cold stress, with the juve light, with all meditation, you got, I mean, you're like a full day, full-time biohacker. How can you focus on your life and your business, right? And I kind of resonate with that. So I think for average people, uh, I think kind of that sweet spot's kind of like exercise, you know, four to five days a week, you know, if you could do some of these different things and it depends on your environment too. Look, if you live in, in Tucson, Arizona, do you need a juve light and photobiomodulation? Probably not because most of the year you can walk outside and get sunlight. But for me in Seattle, Washington, when it's very dark, I rely upon in the winter in January, it can be really tough on the mind because the, the, the amount of lumens of intensity of light you're getting is just suboptimal. So that's where the photobiomodulation, the juve light comes in. But look, so, so what I do is, you know, I have the cold plunge out there. It's right. It's literally, it's so convenient for me because it's, I have a, we put a sliding glass door in our bedroom. So I just walk out again, every time I do this, it sucks. I'm thinking of a million and one reasons why I don't want to do it, but I do it anyway, because I know that the rest of the day is going to be better. So that's just me personally. Um, that for me, you know, as a business owner, entrepreneur, thing, things like that, there's a lot of stuff I don't want to do. So for me, that's a mental exercise. Does Sally Smith in Minnesota have to do that? Probably not. But if you're looking for more grit and you want to kind of harden yourself up, it can be something that you do two to three days a week. Um, you know, one thing that I do every single morning, I have to do it. We have 17 chickens, you know, four turkeys, two pigs. I have to feed them. And that's probably the, the, the biggest thing that, that I look forward to. 
there's some days when it's pissing rain and I don't want to do it, but it's great because it gets me outside first thing in the morning. Cause if I don't let the chickens out, they're making a ton of noise. The turkeys make, waking up the neighbors and the pigs are making all kinds of racket. So I have to get out there and do it. And I think that's a hidden little side benefit uh, for obviously you get the great eggs and you can get meat from the pigs, but it gets you outside. And I think if there's just one thing that I would never want to give up, I could do away sorry, juve. I could do away without the juve. I could do away without the sauna, but getting out in the morning, man, if I do that, my day is so much better because even if it's cloudy out, it just does something to wake you up and my sleep and wake cycles are much better. Yeah. I've got two dogs, a turtle and six fish. So I got to feed those guys every morning. Unfortunately, I don't get to eat them, but, <laughs> but no, I agree. I think it is important to get out in the, in the, in, in, in the outside and spend more time outside. I mean, goodness. I mean, Humans, obviously, we evolved outside, and, and it's only been the last, well, I mean, actually, probably, we, we've been spending the majority of our time, certainly the last couple hundred years, I guess, but, but I mean, and it's only getting worse, and now it's not even, you know, there's no tasks to do inside, because like I said, you can call up and order a pizza, and you know, you know, it's, it's like you've got a robot that vac can vacuum your floor if you want, and so, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to where we're just sitting in one place, sitting in front of a screen, and, uh, you know, our activity level is tremendously d diminished and so i mean i'm almost i'd say i'm almost je jealous of zach running through the trails you know two hours a day or whatever <laughs> but i'm thinking i'm not gonna run 100 miles just <laughs> well i think too like what you said mike is telling and it kind of comes full circle to what we talked about in the beginning too is like you know you skip that morning process that you talk about where you get up and you go on a lot of those chickens and the turkeys and the pigs and it gets easy if you skip that to skip the next step and the next step before you know it, you're like at late morning, you haven't done anything. So like, sometimes I think it's just like, it's like kind of, it, it kind of, it's like starting firing you up more or less. And then that once you do that first thing, you kind of get moving and then you're like motivated to do the next step and the third step and the fourth. And before you know it, you're you know halfway through your day and have a bunch of things checked off the list of stuff to do. And that's kind of what I find too. And it's, and it's, interesting to me because I've got such a routine for running and that kind of becomes a like since I do a lot of my training first thing in the morning or pretty much first thing in the morning that that kind of part of my routine is kind of like I'm sure it's mostly psychological but it like you know it triggers me to kind of get things going and then the rest of the day will be more productive and my wife and I always joke around like we're so less productive on days that we don't run, even though we have an extra couple hours because it's like, there's nothing there to kind of jumpstart stuff. So find, I think the message, the take home message is that if you can find something, whether it be, you know, something as simple as a five minute, like go outside and, and, and do something really quick to kind of get things moving. That can be the, the catalyst to set you up for a, a productive day versus an unproductive day. Oh, that's beautiful, Zach. You know, I think, we don't realize that progress begets more progress and it creates that momentum that's needed. And, you know, for a lot of people, the first thing they do is check in Instagram. And, and so, you know, going back to what Sean said, what are the things that you have to do? Well, we kind of talked about some of those that I like to do, but one thing that I recommend no one does first thing in the morning is check your email, check your Instagram. Your day will most likely be way crappier if you do that first thing. And I, I'm guilty of that, you know, as an, all, I have an online business, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, part of me wants to check off some boxes of checking my email, checking stats and it just sends the day down a bad trajectory. So I keep my phone in airplane mode. We do use it for the alarm clock, um, but they're now in the summer, the chickens do wake us up, so that's no problem. But that's a, a good routine, a bad routine that people need to get out of. And it's very easy to get into that. And I, I know a lot of online business owners and people that are 
even just using social media for their friends, they're looking at Instagram, just scrolling in bed. And it's really not a good way because like you said, Zach, you don't have that. Mark Bell says it really well. He's like, look, you just got to put points on the scoreboard, man. Just like literally just one foot in front of the other. There's, there's not a lot of magic to this. It's just getting a little momentum. And for some people that momentum can be walking out on their apartment, you know, in the parking lot. I mean, do whatever you can do when I'm traveling and staying in a dumpy Airbnb or a dumpy hotel. I mean, I, I still get outside and that's just what I do. I go for a quick little walk. It doesn't look pretty. My hair's not done, but it's like you do it anyway, because you know, like you said, Zach, you're going to have a better day compared to the days when you, when you don't do things. And I think it's important now for parents listening to this in, in the summertime, diving into these studies, which is really interesting kids tend to gain weight over the summer and their, their health tends to go down because they don't have that routine of going to school. So I'm going to start sharing some of the research on this. I didn't realize there was all this whole body of evidence where they've studied kids and their body composition and, and they can get fat in the summer because they're not, you know, they have more free time. They're not doing anything. So hmm. take home it, message. Yep. That, I was just going to say that's, that's really fascinating to me because I think that almost has to be a product of the modern times because like, I think of when I was in like middle school, like I would, I, if I had any body composition change, it would probably be during the school year. Cause then I'm sitting in a desk for seven hours a day and in the summer. It's like, I was moving all day long. Whereas I guess now kids are probably sitting and playing video games, watching Netflix and stuff like that. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> so hey Mike, I want to, I want to go back to, uh, you know, cause you talked about, you know, having the pigs and the turkeys and the chickens and whatnot. And I think that, you know, I mean, I'm, I think that's great. And I think, and this is something that, you know, I talk about and I'm, you know, I'm a proponent of meat, obviously. I think meat is a superfood, but I'm also, um, you know, I think we have a big problem with the way we produce food in general. It doesn't mean it's plant, it's meat, you know, right now, like 80% of the beef industry and I'm pro, and I'm a big fan of beef, believe me, um, regardless of where it comes from, but 80% of it is controlled by three corporations, you know, it's Cargill, it's Tyson, I think, JS Foods or something like that. And so we've got this um, huge centralization of our food production. And, and what, that, what that does is it takes the control away from what you and I want, it, want, it, want as a product. And I think it is so important uh, that we as a community start supporting, you know, these local guys, you know, these, these ranchers and farmers, whether, whether they're eating plant-based or animal-based or a mixture of both, uh, we have to sort of sort of support that. And I know there's economies of scale and there's efficiency uh, issues and feeding enough people. And it's, it's a very complicated situation, but I see a continued push towards um, just industrialized food and whether that's meat that has been made in a laboratory or fake meat that is, you know, made in, in, a, in, a, in a factory or, you know, um, a, a, a push to, you know, take meat and, and mix it with plants and that sort of stuff. And so I think that's an important discussion. I think um, as a community of consumers and people that are concerned about our health and our kids' health and our future, um, and, you know, this is a thing. I think when people talk about sustainability, a sick population is not sustainable. I mean, we have to have a healthy population of people because the healthcare industry puts out 10% of our greenhouse gases in the United States or something along those lines. And so what are your thoughts regarding, um, you know, sourcing of food and, and that sort of stuff? So I know you've talked about that before. Yeah, that's a, a brilliant question. You know, I think, and this is a controversial question. You know, I think if you just look at grass-fed meat versus grain-fed meat, look at fatty acid differences and all that. I mean, is there a huge difference? Probably not. But for me, 
I know that if I'm going to buy something, I'm supporting the change that I want to see. So that's just my, is it my personal bias? Does everyone have to do it? Absolutely not. But I just find that I just generally feel better that way. feel better about the process. So we have a farmer we work with. We buy half a grass fed cow every year. And then we have hunter friends going on a hunting trip, you know, this November, stuff like that. So we, we try to do the best we can with pasture raised, grass fed. Are we perfect? No, but we do what we can. But I think there's a lot of benefits to it. You know, for example, yeah, there's a few people in my neighborhood, they have the true green person that goes around and sprays the heck with who knows what they're using, spraying all these things are on our grasses and, and all that. All these new homes now, because of all the chemicals they use to keep the lawns green, need this you know special drainage system underneath them. It's, it's really elaborate because at least in the Kirkland area, I don't know if it's every neighborhood in the US, but we're close to like Washington. And so they want to, they have to treat the water that runs off their grass before they can just dump it into the sewage system and the drainage system, which to me was mind blowing. Anyway, the point of saying that is if you have chickens, for example, in your backyard, you don't need a ton of space. Chickens love to eat bugs. All they do all day long is dig and search for bugs. And so we don't have bugs. Uh, you know, we have a bunch of garden beds and all that. I never have to spray pesticides, herbicides, glyphosate, none of that crap because the chickens are eating that. I don't have to worry about ticks on my dogs because chickens and turkeys love ticks and fleas. So I, I think all in all, if you look at this, it's way better for your local environment, for your home, for your family, but it's also better for the global environment as well because the pesticides and pollution and, and so forth. So I think it's a big issue. And just when I find that when people get backyard chickens, then they start wanting to do everything local too. And so, because they're like, wow, I can take the chicken poop and fertilize my lawn with that. That's really, that's kind of cool. Like it saves time and money and it's better for everything. So I think there's a lot of transferability and I think it gets people, you know, connected as communities because, you know, if my neighbor's pissed off at me because we played loud music or I don't know what did construction. I like, to do construction on my house, I'll give him some eggs, right? And he lo they love that because they're not going to do backyard chickens. They're trying to sell their home, for example, right? So I, there's a lot of benefits to that. I think it gets people connected. And I understand if people can't do this because of they're super busy, they're single parents, working multiple jobs, totally, you know, emphasize with that. But, you know, you can go to a farmer's market, you can go to, to a, a farmer, a rancher, befriend them. Maybe if you can't afford grass-fed beef or can't afford beef at all because you're on a, a strict budget, I bet you could shovel hay. I bet you could do something because these ranchers, these farmers are pretty cool people. They're hardworking folks and you can get creative. You know, this isn't some major corporation where they're tracking every penny, you know, being spent. Now, I would say there's some downside too to the grass fed movement, right? Unfortunately, a lot of the bones, the brain, the organs, they throw them away uh, due to, and that's really sad. So I think, you know, there's the upside of the big agriculture because they're consuming every little, I mean, the freaking probably the hooves are used, the tail, the penis, who knows, like everything is used, which is great, right? There's no waste because they're trying to recoup some of their fixed costs. The downside of all this grass fed stuff is it's mom and pop one-off slaughter days. And I was talking with the, the farmer that I work with and he was like, uh, I said, can I get some extra bones? He goes, oh, hell yeah, man. I'll load you up because we can't sell those bones legally. And I'm like, what? Uh, to me, it was a, it blew my mind. So they're throwing away all this, these bones that could be utilized for bone broth. And it's grass-fed, it's organic and all this crap. But due to some weird legislation and who knows if, you know, um, uh, political action groups from these big farming companies are like influencing that, but he couldn't even sell the bones to me. He had to like, we had to do a under the table type of deal illegally, which I'm fine with, but that, that to me was a damn shame. So 
that's why I'm saying become friends with someone in your local environment, a farmer, and you'll be surprised. You could probably get liver, tongue, brain, you can get kidney, you can get whatever the heck you want because, you know, that's the downside about most Americans now is they just want the muscle meat. There's a lot of benefits to the brain, to the heart, you know, to tongue, uh, beef tongue, put it in the slow cooker. It tastes really good. My wife recently, we've started getting goat testicles. <laughs> it looks funny to cook a man. And when you get them, you're like, damn, that thing is big, but um, there's something to it. So anyhow, I, there's pros and cons. I don't know what the solution is, but, but I know that from traveling to Indonesia, parts of South America, Chickens are everywhere, man. And so I think it's a great kind of gateway drug into getting into what it would be like to be a little bit more sustainable. And that's kind of why I do it. You know, if, if anything, Kim Jong-un, you know, nukes the, our uh, electrical grid, you know, at least I got, I got some bacon for a couple months before all hell hits, you know. So that's kind of one of the things that I, that I do it for. But yeah, we, and you know, and my daughter, she's six years old, right? And so she just loves playing. You know, she, we don't have video games, Fortnite and all that. I know other parents complain about phones and this and that. Her outdoor activities is like watching me do construction, helping out, or she's, you know, shoveling chicken crap or playing with the pigs, you know? And so that to me is really cool. Cause like Zach, you talked about, like when I grew up in the summer, we weren't playing video games. We were out and about. And so we need as parents with young kids, we need some impetus to get them outside. And, uh, and that's where animals are fun because whenever her friends come over, man, they're screwing around with the chickens, playing with mm -hmm. the pigs, you know, and, and have the dogs in with the, all the animals. And it's just awesome because um, they're outside, you know, and as parents nowadays, there's so much temptation for phones and games and to be indoors that we need every little advantage we can get. Yeah, I mean, kids are kind of like having a dog. I mean, you know, it's, it's like if, if, you know, you want to entertain them, you got to exercise too. And so, I mean, it was kind of funny because I've got, at my house, I've got my gym kind of outdoor in a barn, you know, out in the barn in an old stable with the, the place had horses. We don't have horses. So I just threw my gym in, in the stable. And so I, I had my old heavy bag laying on the ground and my little six-year-old boy goes, hey, daddy, let's hit this. And so I, you know, I loaded it up, you know, hung it up and he started hitting it for a while. And I was like, well, hell, I'm going to hit it too. I hadn't hit it in about 10 years. And so it was fun. So I get out there and start smacking the bag a little bit. Feels pretty good. Sweet. Actually, you know, speaking of all the vegans that come after me. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Anyway, yeah, I know it's important to, um, you know, get those kids out there, get them doing stuff. And, and it, it's true. My kid, anytime I'm out there doing some kind of project, you know, you, you know, what power wash in the yard or the, the driveway or, my kid wants to be out there and do it. Can I help? I'm building something. He's always wanting to, can I do it? Can I use the tools? And, mm -hmm. You know, it's fun to get them out there and get them, get them away from the electronics because that's, uh, you know, you just think about it, the skills that people are not going to have. I mean, you know, it's going to be, people are going to be, you know, their, their freaking uh, car is going to have a flat tire and they're not going to, they're, they're not going to be able to change it. I mean, these just basic life skills that you and I, you and I take for uh, advantage or we're losing them, you know, and it's, it's kind of a shame to see. And that's the thing with our, but the real thing that scares me is the, the, the farming community because they're, you know, the average age for a lot of these ranchers is 62, 63 years of age. And there's not a lot of incentive to go into it anymore. And, you know, it's going to be, like I said, unless we can kind of convince young people and uh, appreciate what they're doing, let them know, hey, we appreciate what you guys are doing. You're feeding us, for God's sake. You know, I mean, that's the most basic, most important thing you can possibly do. I mean, without food, we all die, obviously. And so... Um, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll avert the uh, coming uh, sort of crisis where everything's made by robots in the lab, which is, you know, what we're, you know, people that make money would love that because they ain't got to pay, they ain't got to pay people, you know, robot, robot, robot doesn't take time off, works 24 hours a day, doesn't complain. And so, wow. um, 
you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's, it's scary to think about, but yeah, these life skills, I think they're transferable. And then it just, you know, you think about what people would eat if they're on the farm or the ranch or the whatever, and it, it's not uh, beyond meat. I'll tell you that. Right. So I think that's kind of the thing that, that reinforces this. It comes back full circle, the lifestyle changes, the mindset that it takes work to build something uh, and you're getting in sunlight and then you're eating real food. So that's kind of my, you know, the way that I, I view it again, is it perfect? No, but um, I think, um, you know, and interestingly enough, my uncle, bless his heart, he worked for Tyson. So we, we have conversations about this all the time and, and their mindset is like, look, we're feeding the world. We're doing all this. And I understand that, but, um, but, but I think there's better ways to do it. I mean, if, if we think about how these chickens live, uh, for example, in the turkeys, I mean, I think, you know, pasture raised cattle versus, you know, feedlot cattle. I think there's, there's not a phenotypic difference that's, but there is, but it's not maybe as drastic compared to like pasture raised chicken versus feedlot, uh, you know, chicken, because they never see the daylight. They're indoors and, and all that. So I, I think that, and they're so clustered together. I think cows, the amount of muscle mass they have they're you know, even if they're on a feedlot, they're still moving their muscle mass around. Yeah. They might have antibiotics and this and that, but, but I, I don't, I think with chicken and poultry, and that's why I, I don't eat chicken. I don't eat poultry unless it's our own, of course. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a good point. But, you know, if we look at just the nature of those animals, I mean, ruminant animals, you know, if you look at most ruminant animals, they are herd animals. If you go to the great herds of Africa, if you look at the wildebeest and stuff like that, I mean, they they have no problem having hundreds of thousands of them clustered together. Uh, whereas you don't see typically, you know, chickens and other birds doing that. Maybe, maybe you might see some large flocks, but not, not in the tight circles. And cows, even, even cows in a feedlot, and I've been to many feedlots, many ranches, and you see them and they have all this space. They still voluntarily choose to sit together. And the reason they do that is because it's predator avoidance behavior. They know if they tightly cluster, they can kind of protect themselves in mass from predators. And so, again, I do agree there's a difference between the different types of food. And I also don't eat, pretty much never eat chicken. And not necessarily for those reasons, just because I don't find it to be as nourishing. Although, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm excited. You know, like I had some... Uh, you know, the friend I talked about, you know, I went to their house and got some fresh eggs from them. And, mm. you know, I enjoy eating those eggs. I mean, it's like, I'm going to eat them because I know where the chickens came from and, mm -hmm. you know, whether they taste better or not, or, or more nourishing for me or besides, is besides the point, you know, I, I just, you know, it just gives me a reason to kind of want to do that for just, I guess, you know, sort of ethical reasons, I suppose. But yeah. uh, anyway, Mike, well, I appreciate, you know, you coming on. Uh, we, we got another podcast here to do in a little bit. So nice. uh, this has been great, great information. I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days over yeah, in, uh, awesome. you, cause you're going to kick on, right? We're going to see exactly. you in Austin. Yeah. yeah we'll you get there? Get there Friday. Uh, yeah, I get there tomorrow actually. So we're going to oh, kind of just hang yeah. out Thursday and tour around and stuff like that. So yeah, we'll definitely, I'll send you an email. We'll get you on our, our show and stuff like that. And Zach, great to meet you. Great questions, guys. Really appreciate you having me on. This has it's been a lot of fun. So yeah, it's, yeah, Mike, it's been a blast, Mike. Yeah, let us know where, where, where people can find you. Yeah, great question. So uh, my website, highintensityhealth.com, um, but I'm pretty active on Instagram, metabolic underscore Mike, but if you just search muscle in there, and then on YouTube as well, I, I do three to four videos a week on YouTube. So uh, yeah, if you guys listen to this, you enjoy it, um, then you might enjoy some of the content we offer, but just grateful that you, you all are still here and listening and uh, appreciate you tuning in. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Appreciate you guys. Sure. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, 
please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.